This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon. This is Michael Sambalos with the late May on the Market podcast. I had a few things I wanted to discuss with you this time, most of which are a review of the topics we've been discussing on some of the Zoom calls we've been having with clients. And so just uh, uh, to take through the topics, we're going to talk about inflation, some COVID news of the week related to U.S. spending, second waves of infection, and the Oxford vaccine. Uh, I want to discuss briefly this whole debate about whether or not lockdowns hurt or help. And then on the intersection between politics and economics, we're going to talk about the exploding U.S. federal debt, the precedent from Eisenhower and Biden's tax and spending agenda as it stands right now. So real quick, on the risk of inflation, a lot of clients have been asking about this, and here's how I've been answering it. Heading into this year, the U.S. had experienced an entire decade of negative short-term interest rates for only the second time since 1830. And the U.S. was also running a massive fiscal deficit in spite of full employment, which usually doesn't happen. And still there was no inflation overshoot. Uh, in the 2020 outlook, we theorized on all of the reasons why related to globalization, industrial robots, bargaining power, the impact of uh, online retailing. But the bottom line on inflation is if we didn't see it in the U.S. during the prior decade, which was one of the loosest monetary and fiscal periods in history, I'm not sure why it would show up now. I'm actually much more concerned about deflation given the restructuring wave on corporate balance sheets. So for some real quick COVID news of the week, uh, U.S. real-time spending, our new tools show that social distancing spending on things like retail, lodging, restaurants, theme parks, and theaters, and things like that, are actually improving a lot uh, uh, at a rapid pace since March uh, lows um, in reopened states with low virus infection levels. That's why we needed to splice all of this spending data, not just look at the national data, which is a mix of different states and different situations. But when you look at what happens in states that reopen and their infection rates fall, uh, those spending levels tend to improve much more quickly, which I think is a good sign. And another good sign is that uh, with the exception of New York and New Jersey, the median ICU utilization rate for ICU beds is just 7%. And so it does seem as if uh, we don't know what kind of second waves may or may not happen. But it does seem as if there's ample uh, healthcare capacity in a lot of states to deal with second waves if they occur. So far, we're only picking them up in West Virginia and Arkansas based on our definitions. And uh, we know it's not herd immunity at work given the serology testing results. So the lack of second waves in the U.S. so far is either the result of a time lag, meaning it'll show up eventually, or that weather factors, individual variation of susceptibility, social distancing, and a bunch of other factors are suppressing the transmission of the disease. Uh, results are similar, by the way, in Asia and Europe. Uh, limited second waves so far. And for all the topics we just discussed in sections one and two of our coronavirus web portal, you can go into all the detail that you want. Um, uh, the And then one last COVID news of the week topic um, the U.S. Biomedical Research and Development Authority, BARDA, 
provided uh, over a billion dollars to AstraZeneca and Oxford to support their phase two and phase three studies. Um, 300 million doses would be secured for the U.S. with the first doses delivered as early as October, believe it when I see it, if the trials are successful. Uh, so far, all the only thing Oxford has released is the results of its monkey trials, and the reception was mixed there, um, which we get into in Section 4 on the web portal. But uh, And they haven't released the results from Phase 1, but presumably they, they were okay or else they wouldn't be proceeding with Phase 2 and Phase 3. So now let's talk about this question and debate very briefly of whether or not lockdowns did any good. Uh, there's an understandable effort underway to figure out if the lockdowns did, were any, did any good and what impact did they have on COVID mortality rates and how did they affect other diseases and life-threatening conditions. This is, these are really complicated questions historically. They've taken months, if not years, to analyze, and, and they result in peer-reviewed studies that analyze all the counterfactuals. Uh, until then, you should be very cautious when somebody pings some newspaper hyperlink at you uh, referring to some guy that's figured out already uh, that lockdowns had no, no mortality benefit for, for the countries that use them. And uh, here is some grade school logic. A, Germany experienced lower infection rates than Italy. B, Italy had more stringent lockdown policies for Germany. Therefore, C, lockdown policies had no benefit for Italy. Um, anybody that's taken a high school logic class will see that while A and B are true, C doesn't necessarily have to follow from A and B. The bottom line is you can only understand Italy's lockdown benefit from the dynamics of Italy's own health care and uh, demographic situation, and you can't infer anything from Germany. Um, there's a paper that's been circulating and has been cited publicly by research groups within other parts of J.P. Morgan that makes the assertion that lockdowns had no beneficial impact in Europe. And people from other research groups within J.P. Morgan have been all over the press uh, touting this thing. Okay, first of all, its author was an oceanographer at Woods Hole, and I have no reason to doubt that he is an excellent oceanographer. But we have to have some discipline in a pandemic that scientists from other disciplines shouldn't just be airlifting in with observations on things that they don't work on full time. Even more important than that, I asked some mathematical biologists who special in virus disease research to look at this paper, and they had a whole bunch of concerns about its methodology its conclusions and its assumptions. I list them on page three of, of the Eye on the Market that's coming out this week. And, you know, it's a laundry list of, of things that, that didn't make sense to them. So I have no objection to the concept uh, in principle that we will eventually learn that lockdown costs exceeded their benefits, whether economically or even within the healthcare sphere. Uh, but to convince me, it's going to take properly peer-reviewed research not some random missives on the internet that people find, uh, not newspaper articles, and not drive-by opinions from people airlifting in from other disciplines. And so, you know, you can take a look and judge for yourself as whether the concerns raised by the people that I showed this artic article to are legitimate or not. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't hold a lot of water and lacks, uh, lacks the same amount of discipline as that whole BCG uh, vaccine thesis we saw about a month ago, and uh, of course all of the nonsense about the benefits of hydrochloroquine uh, as a treatment for COVID. 
The last topic for this week has to do with a little bit of history and current policy as it relates to the federal debt. So um, on page four of the Eye on the Market this week, there's a chart that shows the, the history of the federal debt going back to the late 1930s. And anybody that's looked at this chart you know, knows the contour, which is there was this enormous spike in the federal debt associated with uh, World War II. Uh, it came down sharply by the end of the 1950s, was more or less unchanged uh, until the financial crisis, and then shot up again for a variety of reasons. And now with the virus-related spending, we'll be re-reaching those World War II levels either in 2020 or in 2021. <clears throat> so the question is, how did this happen? Uh, uh, not so much the, the rise recently, but how, after World War II, did the U.S. reduce its debt ratio almost by half in a single decade? Because that those policies might be things that we'd want to think about. And as we show here, and this is something that I first wrote about a couple of years ago, during the 1950s, they did not cut spending. There were no sharp increases in tax collections. Uh, the Fed did not engineer negative interest rates to starve savers to jumpstart growth, and they also didn't inflate its way out. And so if they didn't raise taxes and they didn't cut spending and they didn't inflate their way out and they didn't engineer negative real interest rates, how did the debt-to-GDP ratio fall? Well, the simple answer is the debt itself didn't fall. What the United States did was to adopt a very aggressively pro-growth policy to grow the denominator. So debt stayed the same, but the debt-to-GDP ratio fell. The United States grew uh, by almost 4.5% in real terms over the entire decade um, with modest inflation of just 2%, but the combination of those real and nominal growth numbers cut the real debt-to-GDP ratio in half. And... <laughs> When you look at the blueprint of what was done during the Eisenhower administration, uh, in general, um, although not across the board, there were a bunch of, for the most part, pro-business policies. And so lower taxes on small business, elimination of double taxation, which led to subchapter S, accelerated depreciation to, mo to promote investment, write-off of R&D, Reduce taxes on profits earned abroad, elimination of wages and price control, agricultural price supports, reduce tariffs. Now, one thing they did do is they had a very aggressive and vigorous antitrust policy that was applied to both vertical and horizontal mergers uh, in an effort to limit some of the monopolies that had emerged during the war. Uh, and they were, and Eisenhower and his people were, were pretty aggressive about. Uh, maintaining vibrancy across lots of different sectors at different levels of the economy, both in the private and public markets. Um, uh, and for all the hyperbole about the, the changing personal tax rates, even Saez and Piketty and Zuckman uh, acknowledge that the uh, uh, taxes on the top 1% were only about 5 to 7% higher uh, back then uh, than they are now. And so... Um, while some of these Eisenhower policies might not make sense for a population that's older, and, and some people argue that a Keynesian approach makes more sense to get rid of this debt, when you look back at how the United States reduced its debt, the Eisenhower blueprint is really the only one that we have uh, and in general is best described as a, as a pro-business, pro-growth policy 
that also um, sticks to capitalism with a small C and, uh, and, and is aggressive uh, about prosecuting and eliminating uh, situations where you have monopolies uh, and price fixing. So that brings me to the last comment, which is uh, my, my, I was talking to my 25-year-old son about the election, and he mentioned that some of his friends were very reluctant to vote for an established candidate like Biden. And I actually wonder whether his friends have read Biden's policy positions and not just looking at Twitter and things like that. Biden's got a very progressive economic agenda as it relates to taxation. No more income cap on the payroll tax. In other words, above 400000 of income, the payroll tax would be infinite uh, or apply to an infinite level of income. Um, tax capital gains is ordinary income. Uh, further limitations on itemized deductions, no secret ballot worker elections to strengthen unions. Federal government can negotiate uh, Medicare drug prices, um, minimum level of corporate taxes, limited tax breaks for real estate and fossil fuels, base broadening measures. These are a lot of the prog very progressive positions that, that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has wanted to get onto the, the core platform of presidential candidates for a long time, and, and, and now they're here. And so um, I, I, I wonder whether my son and his friends have taken a close enough look, because I think these positions are extremely progressive. Uh, and in terms of polling, there has been uh, a pretty clear shift since February in favor of Biden in the swing states. Um, and so uh, that's interesting to note. In terms of the impact for investors, I'm not really that concerned about wealth redistribution per se because shifting a dollar from wealthy people to less wealthy people tends to increase spending, right? Because people that have less money have higher propensities to spend. So I don't think the market is going to be very concerned about redistribution of wealth per se. The bigger issue for investors is the change in corporate tax rates. Uh, and you could easily see two to 250 points on the S&P um, wiped out if you were to reverse all of the corporate tax cuts. Um, and uh, the other thing for investors to think about that we end this week's Peeth with is um, some history on antitrust. Uh, and when you look at the collapse in Department of Justice antitrust investigations over the last 40 years, and in particular on the tech sector, um, you could see some pretty substantial changes if there's an antitrust revival and how that would impact the part of the market that has been leading both with respect to market capitalization and performance and also with respect to sales and earnings growth. So um, that's the Eye on the Market for this week. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. 
please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.